Welcome to Kids Considered, a podcast from UC Davis Children's Hospital, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. My name is Kia. I'm the parents of a six-month-old little boy. I've noticed that whenever he cries, his belly button pokes out. My pediatricians told me not to worry about it. But at what point do I need to be concerned? So this is a pretty common thing that we see as pediatricians. We call it an umbilical hernia and something that, of course, parents are going to be worried about. So this is a great discussion. Um, And we are really excited to have Dr. Jonathan Kohler, one of our pediatric surgeons here at UC Davis, joining us for this discussion. Dr. Kohler has a passion for minimally invasive surgeries, trauma, and health communication, which is why he's the perfect person to come on this podcast. He also is a fellow podcaster and developed the SET podcast, which is a podcast that explores innovations in surgery out of the University of Wisconsin, where he was before he joined us here. So we are really excited to have you um, for this little mini-series on some pediatric surgery topics. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Kohler. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is great. And we really need a pediatric surgeon because this kind of question is something that Dr. Lena and I, as pediatricians, we refer to the surgeon and say, you know, ask ask them. Help Help us. Yeah, it's a little out of our wheelhouse, but something that, like we said, I, I commonly see in the office. So let's begin our discussion talking a little bit about hernias. Can you just tell us first, what is a hernia? What causes a hernia? A hernia is is basically a hole, and specifically, it's a hole that something's poking through. So um, when we talk about a hernia, it means that there's a hole somewhere, and there's something poking through it. What are the most common hernias to occur in children? Where Where do these occur? So they really can occur anywhere. Hernia is a really broad term, but I think when we talk about hernias, and when parents think about hernias, they probably are thinking about abdominal wall hernias. So holes in the abdominal wall. There are a number of places where there are some natural holes, and one of those is the belly button. And that's actually probably where we see the most hernias, at least in little kids. Uh, About 20% of babies when they're born will have at least a small umbilical hernia. We also think about inguinal hernias, so that's like down in the groins. And then there's uh, something called an epigastric hernia, where there can be a little hole that actually isn't normally there um, in in a baby, typically, where you'll see a little bit of fat poking through that hole. And I just want to be clear, it's not a hole that's like a complete hole, right? It's a, <laughs> it's a hole in, in a layer of the wall, right? Right. And it, it's, it can be complicated. Inguinal hernias occupy the minds of medical students. I'm sure you guys remember from your anatomy and having to define like, what's the floor of the hernia? What's the roof <laughs> of the hernia? And even I can still kind of get sort of turned around around like which oblique aponeurosis is involved <laughs> in which portion of the hernia. And I think that that's a hard way to think about it, um, even for people who do it full time. I think the hernia that makes the most sense to people because you can actually like put your finger in it and understand what's going on is that belly button hernia where there is a hole in the abdominal wall, right? And that's where the umbilical vessels used to come out and the umbilical cord used to attach. So you had to have a hole there because blood was coming from the placenta and going into the baby. And then it's just a question of like, does that hole completely close or not? But it's right. There's not a hole like from the outside to the inside. There's skin covering that umbilical hernia, but it's a hole in one layer, that fascial layer, the abdominal wall muscle layer. 
The muscle layer, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another important thing, right? The hernia is the hole. It's not the bulge. So sometimes people will say, oh, my baby has an enormous umbilical hernia. And they, they really don't. If you actually push down and you feel the hole, the hole can be quite small, but there can be, you know, a lot of fluid or fat or even intestine that kind of comes out through the hole. But we're much less worried about like how big the poochiness is and much more worried about like how big is the hole. And honestly, we're not that worried about that either. Yeah, usually the parents are worried about the poochiness of it. So in the in medical speak. Exactly. So <laughs> let's go into each individual type of the, the common hernias that you mentioned. So specifically ta- talking about inguinal hernias, which are the hernias that are in the kind of the groin area. So why why do those occur? It's just you like you said, it, you have a hole. It didn't something didn't close properly, right? Right. So there are basically two types of inguinal hernia, what's called the indirect inguinal hernia and what's called the direct inguinal hernia. The nomenclature is complicated and the you know sort of not worth getting into, but the the basic gist is down in your groins there is a natural hole and it's formed basically and you see it more commonly in boys it's something called the processus vaginalis and the testicles actually develop inside the abdomen and then during development they go down through these holes called the processus vaginalis and they go down to sit in the scrotum and girls have a similar process that goes on but obviously nothing that really goes down into a scrotum for them but they have a little ligament that kind of goes through that same space uh and an inguinal hernia that we see in kids is typically what's called an indirect inguinal hernia um which basically just means that uh, things are getting down through this pre-existing hole that hasn't closed. That what you have what's called a patent processus vaginalis, which means that the processus vaginalis, that hole that existed before, has not sealed down after you're born. So a lot of this has to do with the normal embryology and development of the human body, which is such a really when you think about it, it's so miraculous the way that we develop. But a lot of that's related to to that normal development of the baby. Absolutely. Like kids don't get hernias from weightlifting, you know, the sort of typical (laughs) direct inguinal hernia that um, that we think of in adults, right, where the muscle wall actually tears and then you get a new hole that bowel can poke up through. These are, you know, consequences of development. And they're probably, like we said, like the hernia is when something's going through the hole, right? So there are probably hundreds, thousands, millions of, of children walking around today with open holes that nothing's poking down through. And it's not a hernia until it's got a bulge. It's not a hernia until something is going through that hole. Until then, it's just a patent processus vaginalis, which is why we sometimes find these indirect inguinal hernias in adults, um, because they've gone their whole life and before something like, comes down into the hole, and then you find it and you fix it. But this is something that you're born with. You've kind of mentioned the symptoms of an inguinal hernia is the bulge. That, is that the main symptom that people have? That's typically when we see them. Um, is when there is a bulge there and you you get a classic story, you know, the mom is giving the baby a bath or the, sees the baby straining um, to have a bowel movement and notices a big bulge that appears in the groin and then often disappears again. And that's typically how we see them. Um, they do sometimes present with more of a complication, like something that's a bulge where the intestine is stuck, but still it's always the bulge that gives it away. And you talked a little bit about the embryology of this with the process vaginalis closing. I would imagine this is why we see this much more commonly, it seems, in premature babies, because, of course, that hasn't 
they come early and that hasn't closed yet. Is that why we see that more commonly in in preemies? Yeah, I think that's the the going theory. Again, you know, like all embryology, it's a little bit of hand waving. Like we don't understand how any of this really works, right? Um, but what we what we do know is that yes, there inguinal hernias are present in we think about one to five percent of babies generally, and it's about double that if you're a preemie. So like five to ten percent of preemies, and preemie here is meaning you know typically meaning pretty young, like under 35 weeks. And it's also about four times more common in boys. So take any of those numbers and multiply by four, and that's where you're starting to see them more more common in, in boys. And you mentioned that boys get them more often than girls because of the different development. I think that's, that, like, again, that's the working theory. Like the processus is bigger um, in boys, it seems to be. Like the testicles have to actually go down through it. You actually are moving something through it, which may promote it staying open. Um, these are these are definitely like the typical patient, right, is is a former preemie boy. You know, what's nice is when I'm examining babies on the exam table, they're usually crying and unhappy that I'm messing with them. And so that creates some abdominal pressure. And so, you know, on occasion, I have seen this bulge in the groin area or, you know, closer to the testicle. And so sometimes in order to do an exam, I'll take a light and shine it to see maybe if it's something called a hydrocele, which is more fluid versus more, you know, intestines are a little bit harder. Is there anything like besides that you think of that could be like, if you see that bulge, do you always think hernia or, or could it be something else? So statistically, hernias are pretty likely, but you can get faked out in a, many different ways. And um, that's why, you know, I trained for 10 years after graduating from medical school to be a pediatric surgeon because there are so many ways that you can get faked out. And and it's not uncommon for a parent to come to us and say, I think my baby has a hernia and us to look at it and say, "Mm, nope. Um, So you you mentioned hydrocele. Um, And hydrocele is basically a fluid ball that sits in that spermatic cord um, which is like the vessels and the vast deferens that go down to the testicle that sort of has a bunch of tissue around it. And sometimes you can get fluid in there and you can have what's called a communicating hydrocele or a non-communicating hydrocele. A non-communicating hydrocele basically means there's a little ball of fluid in that spermatic cord that is just stuck there. It's a little cyst basically, and it doesn't communicate with anything. It's just a little balloon full of fluid. And then, then a communicating hydrocele is actually just a tiny hernia where instead of bowel or fat getting into that hernia hole, it's only big enough to accommodate fluid. So fluid moves in and out. One of the telltale things is if it's a communicating hydrocele or a hernia, which really are effectively the same thing, then it should get bigger and smaller over time. So if you hear a parent saying like, oh, there's this bulge and it's always there and it never changes, then a communicating hydrocele or hernia is unlikely. It's probably a non-communicating hydrocele, or it might actually just be the testicle. Sometimes like a testicle is sitting high and you think, oh, like that's a, that's a bulge, but it's actually just the testicle kind of riding up. And then sometimes, you know, babies get little fat pads and those fat pads can be asymmetrical and you can think that's a hernia. But if it doesn't, if it isn't something you can sort of push back in or identify a hole, then it isn't a hernia. And so that's part of our exam is just trying to figure out like, does this actually communicate with the abdominal cavity and can it be pushed back in or um, is it something that's 
extrinsic to the abdominal cavity, the testicle or a non-communicating hydrocele that's actually just sitting outside of the belly. So you talked a little bit about physical exam maneuvers that you do, which is just, you know, just trying to see if it, push it and see if it goes back in. That's that's typically what I do when I come in contact with a possible hernia. Are there any other specific physical exam maneuvers that you'll do to try and elicit the hernia if it if it's not there or or reduce it? Yeah, it's actually if a child comes to us in clinic and the hernia is out, that's ideal because we're really good at feeling the hernia, squeezing the hernia, differentiating one bulge from another <laughs> bulge. Where the challenge comes in is when the child comes to our clinic and the hernia is not out. Because then, ideally, we'd like to see it. Now, if a pediatrician sends a kid to us to see him in clinic and says, I clearly have seen an inguinal hernia, you know, I know an inguinal hernia when I see it, and this kid has one, like, that counts for a lot for us. Likewise, if the parents describe sort of a classic history of a bulge, and it comes and it goes, and they can sort of point to where it is, and that area makes sense, like, that's a compelling thing. But really, what we want is to see it. And so, like you said, the, you know, getting a baby to cry can be really helpful um, because that puts pressure and sort of can push things out. So in little babies, sort of exposing them to air, sometimes they get cold, they'll cry, they get unhappy about that. Um, in older kids, having mom step to the side of the room and leave the baby near the mean doctor while mommy moves away is an effective way to get them to sort of bear down and cry and isn't exceedingly cruel. And then uh, in older kids who can follow directions, there's some fun stuff you can do. So I like to see if I can get a kid to like roar like a lion and tell them to get as loud as possible. And and that's a sort of fun thing for them to, um, they've probably been told not to roar like a lion many times. So uh, they get to be a little transgressive. And also jumping jacks are also pretty effective just in terms of sort of creating some pressure, downward pressure to sort of push things out through that defect. And particularly for inguinal hernias, it can be tricky because if that hole is small, things aren't necessarily moving in and out of it all the time. Another thing we'll often do is tell parents to take a picture of it when they see it, because often we can tell from a picture. And particularly if the picture is really different from what we're seeing, then we know that it's something that changes and moves in and out. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. What about the role of like imaging or next step. So I'm just thinking about a kiddo that I had in my office recently, and I suspected an inguinal hernia, and um, I referred to pediatric surgery. But then I also had ordered an ultrasound as well. And luckily, they got in to see you guys before the ultrasound was done. And I noticed that, you know, slam dunk kind of canceled the ultrasound, not needed. So just for other pediatricians who may be listening or parents to know what to expect, what role does that play or or should we just not worry about it if we're pretty confident? We will occasionally use ultrasound to try to tease out kind of complex situations, but the vast majority of the time, this is a diagnosis that we make on a physical exam and you don't need any additional imaging and additional imaging can actually complicate the picture because you sort of are now introducing another variable. And and honestly, like a good physical and a good history should let you figure out a hernia. It's a, one of these areas in medicine where additional imaging does not necessarily help. Is this like a totally elective thing that parents should be like calm about and just like wait to have the workup and the treatment? Or is this something that like is in a, are there times that it's an emergency and, and things should move at a very rapid pace? So the vast majority of the time, this is not an emergency. And I totally get that 
seeing your otherwise perfect baby with a weird bulge in their groin is concerning, right? And, and getting us to look at it is great. But the vast majority of the time, this is not a problem. The risk of inguinal hernias is that the intestine can get down into that hole, get into that hernia sac, and get stuck. And what you'd really like to not see is it gets stuck and get twisted. So a hernia that's stuck is called incarcerated. It's locked in hernia jail. And uh, a hernia that's uh, twisted is called strangulated, meaning like it's lost its blood supply. So a strangulated hernia is a surgical emergency. It is also not a subtle thing. The hernia in that case would be tense. It would be red. The kid would be really, really upset. It would be painful. Um, and it also causes a bowel obstruction. So their belly would be getting big. They'd be throwing up. It is not something that you miss. The vast, vast majority of inguinal hernias are not incarcerated or strangulated, but there is a lifetime risk of it happening, right? And that's why we repair them because over a lifetime, there's a decent chance that it would cause a problem. Over the you know two weeks before you get into clinic and the two weeks before you end up in the operating room, the risks are incredibly small. Well, I guess we should just then make explicit that for a regular hernia that's not incarcerated, the, the bulge, it's like otherwise it's asymptomatic for the child. They're not in pain. It doesn't hurt. They're not crying. Their digestion, they're, they're eating, they're pooping. Everything is normal for them, right? That's really true. That's, and that's a really important point. We'll often talk to parents who say, oh, they have this hernia and they're constipated or, oh, they have this hernia and they're having abdominal pain. Those two things are probably true, but they're probably unrelated. And so one thing that we always counsel parents about in a kid who's constipated and has an inguinal hernia is like, we should fix this hernia, but you should know it's not going to fix the constipation. <laughs> yeah. And what age do you do most of those repairs? Does it just depend on when it's noticed, when it's first noticed? Honestly, with inguinal hernias, we sort of repair them when we find them. There is a sort of small subset of really little preemie babies where we'll wait for them to get sort of a little bit older before we'll repair. And sometimes when parents bring very small children to us, we'll have a conversation about it because there are, um, particularly for former preemie babies, you know, we want the kid to be a little bit older before we'll let them have a day surgery, meaning they come in and go home the same day. So in really little babies who are ex-preemies, you know, there's a chance if we do it before 50 or so weeks post-gestational age, then they you know, may have to spend the night in the hospital. So that's sort of a conversation we have with parents. But the vast majority of babies, you know, by the time we see them, um, we're planning on you know, repairing it as soon as we have time and it fits with the parent's schedule. Um, and then they're you know, expecting them to go home the same day after surgery. And how do you describe the surgery to the parents? Like what actually do you do during the surgery? I actually can now do that description uh, without thinking. So I'll uh, I'll start talking now and think about sports while uh, while the conversation comes out of my mouth. This is like something we talk about all the time. Surgical repair has really changed a lot um, since I started training. Um, you know, training for me was a long time. So um, you know, we're talking about a decade ago. You know, all of these were repaired with an open approach, meaning an incision kind of over the hernia, you would go down and find the different structures. You would find the hernia sac. You would put a stitch through it and cut it off and um, then sew the skin up. Um, but increasingly, uh, we've moved towards repairing these laparoscopically. And, and here at UC Davis, all of us repair them laparoscopically, um, me and my five partners. 
And what that involves is uh, we put a little camera in the belly button. We go down with a camera and we can actually look and we can see both sides. Like you're staring down into the abdomen, you see both sides of the hernia. And and what we always say is, you know, we are going to repair the hernia that we know is there. And if we see a hole on the other side, we're going to repair that too, to keep you from having to come back and have this operation again. Now, do we really know that all patent processes vaginalis goes on to become a hernia? No, and that's actually something that's being actively investigated. But we think that there's a reasonably high likelihood and, and the risks we think are pretty low. Uh, so we'll repair both sides. The way we do that is uh, we put a little helper instrument into the abdomen, a little three millimeter instrument um, that goes through a tiny incision. And then we go and put a thread around the hole of the hernia and we just cinch it down. Now, there's some subtleties to that. There's a reason, you know, why pediatric surgery is a 10-year training program, um, which is that the blood vessels and the vas deferens that go down to the testicle in a boy are running right next to you when you're doing this. And so you have to very carefully get your thread between the hernia sac that you're trying to cinch down and the blood vessels and the vas deferens that go down to the testicle. So that's the the sort of skill portion of the case. Um, But typically, you know, it takes about maybe 30 minutes aside and we're able to pass this thread around, cinch it down. We do a little bit of cautery on the sack, sort of use a little electrical current to irritate that skin so that it promotes scarring. And then we just cinch it down and you're left with, uh, you know, a tiny incision in the belly button, a tiny, even tinier incision on the abdominal wall, and then, you know, a millimeter incision over you know, one or both hernias. Wow. That seems pretty minimal. And just like you said, unless they're really small, they get to go home the same day and recover at home, probably with without much need for pain medication or anything like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So Tylenol is fine for pain, typically. Um, in older kids, we'll say you could use Tylenol or Motrin. We put usually glue or little dressings on the wound that kind of fall off on their own. Kids go home the same day. They can go back to eating. They can go back to all their normal activities. We put local anesthetic in the wound, so it's usually fairly numb for like the first six to eight hours. And then right, like that Tylenol ibuprofen is usually fine after surgery. We don't give any antibiotics around surgery because we've discovered that the risk of antibiotic reactions, which is extremely low, is still higher than the risk of an infection with this very clean procedure. So yeah, it's a, it's a really nice operation. Um, the big risks are uh, the risk of injury to that vas or vessels. We think that risk is sort of mathematically modeled because it's uncommon, but we think it's about maybe one in a thousand. And of course, it only really matters if you were to injure both sides. So that's like one in a thousand times one in a thousand or, you know, a one in a million chance of that sort of dreaded complication. You know, a little bit of bruising, a little bit of risk of a wound infection, but that risk is under 1%. And then the risk that the hernia comes back, right? So these operations are never perfect. You know, every operation has a risk of failure. Um, We think that the risk of hernia recurrence uh, with this approach is similar to the risk from an open operation, the old open operation. Um, and that risk we think is about one in 200 in a lifetime. So like half a percent. Yeah. So not insignificant, but not, not, not too much. Very low. Yeah. Yeah. Very low. So let's move our discussion from the groin to the belly button, which we also talked about in our caller mentioned. This, of course, is the other very, very common hernia of childhood and one that luckily frequently doesn't require any intervention except for time and waiting. And so a lot of the things that we talked about with inguinal hernias will probably be similar with umbilical hernias or the belly button hernia. 
But can you tell us a little bit about umbilical hernias and why they occur? Okay, you've now hit on my favorite topic. I actually made <laughs> made my academic career and got promoted um, on the basis of the work I've done on umbilical hernias because I, I actually you find them that, so totally I said fascinating. We have to talk about this. We have yes. to talk about this. I am in many ways a professional navel gazer, <laughs> uh, and uh, and it. It's because the umbilical hernias are actually super fascinating. You know, I think my lab was the first to publish anything about them in about 10 years. But we have actually discovered that there's a lot we don't know about how umbilical hernias work and a lot we don't know about why people manage them the way that they do. But like you said, umbilical hernias are a hole in the belly button. They're common in babies, really common in babies, like 20%. But unlike inguinal hernias, which seem not to close on their own, the belly button closes on its own, like 90% of the time. So by the time kids are four or five, about 90% of those hernias will have closed by themselves. That's amazing. So, I mean, th that, and that's what we see and that's what we tell parents as general pediatricians. You know, the most of these kids hopefully won't make it to your office, Dr. Kohler, because, you know, we're monitoring them in our general pediatrics office. Yeah, sometimes they come to us at very young ages, and that's fine, too. We've talked a lot about prematurely born children um, having hernias, and is that a risk factor for umbilical hernias? Are there any other risk factors to mention? So umbilical hernias, we haven't really identified any particular risk factors. They do seem to be maybe slightly more prevalent in certain ethnic groups, but that may very well just be sort of like reporting bias. The reality is, you know, they're just super common. There are no particular risk factors, and it's certainly nothing that like parents did or the kids did that caused this. They're just born with that hole. Okay, so I have to ask you, because this comes up all the time um, as like a kind of an old myth or wives tale, where usually a parent will come in and like, maybe there'll be like a coin taped over the belly button that they told that their parents told them that if they put that coin there, it's gonna go back in. I have to get your expert opinion on this, Dr. Kohler. What do you think about the coin trick? So um, kids with a coin taped over their belly button, their hernias will close about 90% of the time. <laughs> and kids without a coin taped over their belly button, their hernias will also close about 90% of the time. So this has actually been looked at in Japan, which has a, a really interesting culture around sort of minimizing surgical interventions. So there are often where we'll find, you know, the data on like what happens if you don't operate on this or that, or, you know, what's an, another alternative to surgery. They did a, a study of so-called binders or hernia plugs, and it does seem as though if you apply one of them properly, uh, it may promote the hernia closing a little bit. The downside is applying it properly means tying it on really tight for a long time. And so... While your chance of the hernia closing may improve slightly, your chance of developing like skin breakdown and another complication is actually quite high. So we don't recommend it in its like true therapeutic use of like a super tight binder. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's unlikely to hurt and unlikely to help if you uh, <laughs> tape a coin to the belly button. Mm -hmm. So if um, you mentioned, so about 90% of these will resolve on their own. And, you know, at what age do you expect it to resolve? So the data is surprisingly sparse on this, but it does seem as though four or five is pretty reliably the age when they will close. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes a parent will come in and their child will be like, three years and 11 months, and they'll have a two centimeter hole in their abdominal wall. 
Um, and it's pretty safe to say, like, it's not going to, like, a month later, they're going to wake up and the hernia is gone, right? This is a continuum. Usually what parents will describe as, you know, it was big. And then over time, they sort of noticed it getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And finally, it, it went away. Um, but uh, certainly by the time kids are sort of five, if, and particularly if you're not noticing a trend of it continuing to get smaller over time, uh, that's when we'd say, like, eh, this probably is not going to close on its own. So around four or five, you know, we can refer or maybe they've already been followed by you and you may, you know, consider doing surgery. I've had some parents that are like, eh, I don't care. Like, that's just not I'm not interested in, in surgery or seeing the surgeons. Is there a risk um, if someone chooses not to have it closed or corrected? Yeah. So there are cultures where umbilical hernias are certainly not stigmatized and are actually sort of considered a, like a a positive. Um, those are the cultures where we've learned about like what happens. Um, there are also cultures, you know, where just access to surgical care is not prevalent. And so we don't, you know, kids don't get elective surgery on their belly buttons. They only come in if there's a problem. And based on those studies of, you know, large populations where umbilical hernias are not repaired, um, we've figured out that there's maybe a one in 10,000 or so chance of having an incarceration or strangulation. So it is incredibly rare. Can still happen. And, you know, it's something to think about. But it is, you know, compared to an inguinal hernia, the risk of an umbilical hernia is nothing. The thing I tell parents is, you know, when we repair a, an umbilical hernia in a baby or a young child, the repair is a little bit different than if they try to get it repaired as an adult. And adult umbilical hernia repairs are a pretty involved operation, um, often involving putting mesh into the abdomen. Um, and they can be prone to having problems, particularly in like patients who are heavier. Um, whereas in babies and young children, you know, we go in and we close the hernia with uh, an absorbable suture. So, you know, after two months, there's nothing there except scar. So, you know, if you think you're going to want it repaired, or you think there'd be benefit in repairing it, repairing it as a child is probably better. Um, it's hard to do that head-to-head comparison, of course, but it, it seems like the operation that we do is a little bit less invasive, doesn't leave anything behind. So, you know, it's not a safety factor to get it repaired as a as a baby or a, a younger child, so much as it, you know, might save you trouble down the line. So when you do this surgery, you can't do it the same way as the inguinal because you can't go through the belly button and then correct it like at the same time, can you? I mean, how how do you how's it how's this differ? The first step of the operation is almost the same as uh, the operation that we do for inguinal hernias, which is we make a hole in the belly button or go down to the belly button. Now, in an inguinal hernia, we're using that hole to put a camera in. In an umbilical hernia, we're just making the same incision to expose the belly button, but not putting a camera in it because we're staring at the hole then. And then we just uh, we sew it up. So we just do it from the outside. It's not a laparoscopic operation. It's an open operation, but it's you know a small incision right in the belly button. Sounds very straightforward does. And again, just like the inguinal hernia, same day home, Tylenol and Motrin at home, minimal pain. Exactly. We would not expect kids to need any sort of opioid pain medicine. They'll get local anesthetic and then Tylenol and ibuprofen should be fine for pain. And the vast majority of the kids are going home the same day. And then once it's repaired, what is the risk of recurrence? So we, we quote about the same as for inguinal hernias, which is like one in 200 patients or half a percent risk of recurrence. You know, something that we're actively studying in my lab is like, does the age of repair change your risk of recurrence? But all comers, it seems like, you know, about one in, in 200. 
So really low risk of recurrence. And the nice thing about umbilical hernias is if they recur, like you're staring right at them. So it's usually pretty obvious and easy to detect. Well, that was great. Let's summarize some of the main issues that we talked about related to hernias. So the inguinal hernias are relatively common, and really the physical examination makes the diagnosis for that. And the surgical repair is now more commonly done laparoscopically. So it's a more straightforward, and, and it's a relatively easy procedure for the child to go through. Yeah, absolutely. And umbilical hernias are extremely common. And usually about 90% of these will resolve by age four or five. So they can be followed by your pediatrician and they can refer at that point if they haven't resolved. For all of these hernias, the biggest thing you want to look out for is um, incarceration or strangulation. So that's going to be if the abdominal contents that are stuck in the hernia are really painful, they change color, you know, your kid's having vomiting and not acting normally, that's an emergency. But in the vast, vast majority of these cases, they will just um, can always kind of be pushed back in and they are not what we call a surgical emergency and they can be fixed with time. Um, And just like uh, Dr. Kohler mentioned, the surgeries are very mild. They're usually the same day and your kid can recover at home with Tylenol and Motrin. So if you have any questions about hernia or this sparked any, you know, hmm, I wonder if my kid has that, um, definitely follow up with your pediatrician. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of a joke. Oh, no, a hernia joke? A hernia joke. Did you hear <laughs> about the guy who was helping a friend move some furniture, but he ended up with a hernia? No. And now it looks like he's just going to hang out for the rest of the day. <laughs> That's a good one. That's one of your better ones, Dr. D. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 